You're listening to an episode of a Wondery Plus exclusive series. To continue listening, join Wondery Plus and enjoy ad-free listening to over 40,000 episodes, early access to your favorite podcasts, and more. Find Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. T-minus 30 seconds. Guidance is internal. It's 8.30 p.m. on December 21st, 2015, Cape Canaveral, Florida. 44-year-old Elon Musk stands on the NASA causeway, rain running down his forehead, waiting for liftoff of a rocket built by his company, SpaceX. Most of his team is watching on monitors in the control center, but Musk is determined to watch live. Adrenaline courses through his body. Ten, nine... SpaceX has successfully launched plenty of rockets in its 13-year history. But Musk has learned the hard way that anything can go wrong at any time. And this is no ordinary launch. We have liftoff of the Falcon 9. Musk breaks out into a big grin. It never gets old. He starts the timer on his phone for 2 minutes and 20 seconds. That's when the real test will begin. The primary phase of liftoff is fueled by a first-stage engine, which gets the rocket off the ground. After 2 minutes and 20 seconds, the first-stage engine will disengage, and a second-stage engine will kick in, blasting the rocket into orbit. That's where Musk believes SpaceX will change the game. In the past, first-stage engines fell away from the rocket and crashed into the ocean, where they sank to the bottom, never to be seen again. It's like an airline needing a new plane for every flight, or a driver needing a new car for every road trip. If SpaceX can bring back a first-stage engine, space travel will suddenly become a whole lot cheaper, and mankind will be one step closer to sending humans to Mars. This is SpaceX's third attempt to make it happen, but Musk is feeling confident. So confident, he's live-streaming the launch. As Falcon 9 blasts into the sky, a tail of fire trailing behind it, millions of eyes are watching. Musk looks up at the sky, squinting as the rain falls in his eyes. If all is going according to plan, the first-stage engine should have just flipped over, so it's flying tail-end first. Three of its engines should have ignited, causing enough backburn to slow the rocket down as it falls toward Earth. Musk stumbles back. He wasn't expecting that. The force of the explosion reverberates through his chest. It feels like he's been punched. As he catches his breath, he shakes his head. I thought we had it this time. He looks into the sky, waiting to see a streak of fire and debris falling through the air. Mars feels farther away than ever. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. 
Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code WONDERY to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. From Wondery, I'm Stephen Johnson, and this is American Innovations. And I'm David Brown, host of Business Wars. This month, we're doing something a little different. We've teamed up with another Wondery show, Business Wars, to bring you side-by-side series about the new age of space exploration. Since we first noticed a red dot among the stars, we've dreamed of one day visiting Mars. But while NASA sent men to the moon in the 1960s, the political will to send Americans to Mars never came together. It's been left up to dreamers, often working on their own, to bring the red planet within reach. This is their story. It's a story that's equal parts innovation and business. And our shows will be bringing you both. On American Innovations, we'll look at the scientific and technological puzzles we've had to solve to send humans to Mars. We'll be telling this story in three parts, from the 80s all the way up through the present day. And on Business Wars, we'll be presenting a six-part series on the two corporate rivals at the forefront of this new galaxy quest. SpaceX, led by PayPal founder Elon Musk, and Blue Origin from Amazon founder Jeff Bezos. Strap yourselves in. This is the first episode of the American Innovation Series, Mission to Mars, Seeing Red. It's July 20th, 1989, Denver, Colorado, 13 years before Elon Musk founded SpaceX and began launching rockets. Aerospace engineer Robert Zubrin sits in his company's conference room. His colleagues at Martin Marietta, now Lockheed Martin, chat amongst themselves. But Zubrin is focused only on the TV. Short, dark, thinning hair and large eyes, Zubrin has an elfin quality. But the look on his face is intense. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Admiral Richard Truly and the crew of Apollo 11. Zubrin and his colleagues are watching a celebration of the 20th anniversary of the Apollo moon landing. Most of them aren't paying close attention. It's mostly a series of politicians commending the Apollo 11 crew. They're only tuning in because there's a rumor that President George H.W. Bush is going to announce a new mandate for NASA 
As a contractor with the space agency, Martin Marietta's business is deeply intertwined with NASA's budget and mission. On screen, Vice President Dan Quayle wraps up his speech and introduces the next speaker. Ladies and gentlemen, let me now introduce to you the man who in six short months has established himself as the premier leader in the world, a man who has his eye fixed on the future, your friend, our president, President George Bush. Zubrin turns to his co-workers. Shh, Bush is about to speak. Zubrin leans forward in his seat as Bush shakes hands with Vice President Quayle and approaches the dais. In 1961, it took a crisis, the space race, to speed things up. Today, we don't have a crisis. We have an opportunity. To seize this opportunity, I'm not proposing a 10-year plan like Apollo. I'm proposing a long-range, continuing commitment. First, for the coming decade, for the 1990s, space station freedom, our critical next step in all our space endeavors. Zubin leans forward even further, his foot tapping nervously on the floor. Come on, come on, come on. And then a journey into tomorrow, a journey to another planet, a manned mission to Mars. As his colleagues cheer and clap, Zubrin throws his head back and smiles widely. Finally, the gauntlet has been thrown. America is going to send humans to Mars. That's what he's wanted ever since he was a small child in Brooklyn, watching the very astronauts being honored today as they stepped onto the surface of the moon. It's the dream that inspired him to quit his job as a science teacher and go back to school to get his master's in engineering. Like many people, he thinks NASA has lost much of its intrepid spirit. Maybe now, finally, it will have the resources to do what it's supposed to do, explore outer space. And Zubrin can't wait to do his part with Martin Marietta. Inside NASA, the mood is very different. The president's mandate isn't reawakening anyone's exploratory spirit. NASA administrators only see a politician setting an overly ambitious goal with no appreciation of how hard it will be to actually pull it off. They've already got their hands full working on Space Station Freedom, a permanently crewed station that will orbit Earth. In the future, Freedom will become a repair station for satellites and a laboratory for experiments on the long-term effects of space. The logistics of developing it have been difficult, sucking up NASA's time and manpower. The space station is already NASA's most ambitious project in decades. Since 1970, when the Apollo program ended, no manned missions have gone beyond low Earth orbit, a distance 1,200 miles above Earth. Mars is 33 million miles away. The administrators grudgingly begin work on a plan to pull off President Bush's vision. Three months later, on November 20th, 1989, NASA publishes a report called The 90-Day Study on Human Exploration of the Moon and Mars. It lays out a complex 30-year strategy for getting humans to Mars. The plan calls for tripling the size of the space station, developing new rockets to launch from the space station to the moon, building a lunar base, and then developing another set of new rockets to launch from the moon to Mars. It's an ambitious plan, 
accounting for every contingency and utilizing almost every major piece of technology NASA is currently developing. But what gets Congress's attention is the price tag. $450 billion. Though NASA plans for the money to be spread out over 30 years, the sticker shock hits hard. It would be the largest single expenditure in U.S. history other than World War II. Concerned about the deficit and a worsening economy, Congress refuses to authorize the spending. NASA's manned mission to Mars is grounded before it can even get started. In Denver, Robert Zubrin is livid. It's December 1989, Denver, Colorado. Zubrin is pacing his boss's office at Martin Marietta. Honestly, I don't know how they even call this a plant. This is like every single person at NASA fought for their pet technology, and then they just mashed it all together and called it a day. Robert Zubrin's boss is used to his tirades. He's learned to let Zubrin vent, because every once in a while, Zubrin rants and raves his way into a good idea. Look, Bob, I agree with you that the plan is problematic, but... I think we have to assume the intentions were good. You know the saying, space is hard. Going to Mars, it's hard. But it doesn't have to be. From a purely technological point of view, we're in better shape to go to Mars today than we were to go to the moon in 1962. What we lack is urgency. Bush's timeline is way too long. 30 years allows NASA to dream of all the new technology they can develop. If Bush had said 10 years, it would have really made people focus. Plus, the longer the timeline, the more chances Congress has to cut your funding. Bob, for Christ's sake, sit down. You're going to wear a hole in the carpet. You know what NASA's plan reminds me of? When the British Royal Navy set out to explore the Arctic, they loaded up these big steamships with coal and all the supplies they would need for years, and they got stuck in the ice. The ones who made real progress were the guys who worked for the trapping companies. They spent their time observing the native population. They learned how to navigate the terrain and they traveled light using dog sleds, living off land that looked barren to outsiders. We here at Martin Marietta, we should be the explorers on dog sleds. NASA's the Royal Navy. We can't afford to get stuck in the ice with them. (laughs) Zubrin's boss clears his throat. He was willing to hear Zubrin out, But he's had about enough of this monologue of grievances. There's one problem with your analogy, Bob. There are no Martians for us to learn from. Zubrin considers this. No, but we know how to go to space. I bet I could come up with a plan to get humans to Mars in 10 years using existing technology for $20 billion. His boss raises his eyebrows. In spite of himself, he's intrigued. Okay, prove it. What? Prove what you're saying. Come up with a plan that gets us to Mars in 10 years using existing technology for, I'll be generous and say, 30 billion. If I think the plan works, I'll take it to my contacts at NASA and you can pitch it to them. Zubrin's eyes go wide. You're on. Zubrin rushes out the door, eager to get to work, showing NASA how it's done. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. 
I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Welcome to Pura, the most pristine, safe, climate-stable city on Earth. A haven amidst the wreckage. Here, you're safe from heat domes, superstorms, water bandits in the outer lands. There's no crime in Pura. No murder, no suicide. And best of all, there's no cost to join us. In Pura, we promise to keep you safe. They killed her! You took everything! In a world that doesn't feel so safe anymore, we're waiting for you. Here, in Pura. The Last City is a new scripted audio drama from Wondery. Enjoy The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City right now, ad-free, on Wondery Plus. Get started with your free trial at wondery.com slash plus. It's January 1990, Denver, Colorado. Zubrin is pitching his latest scheme to one of his closest colleagues, David Baker. They've been sitting in a conference room for hours, and Zubrin is trying to navigate around a pretty serious roadblock, launching a rocket with enough fuel and supplies for a mission to Mars. The problem is this. The crew of Zubrin's mission to Mars doesn't just need enough fuel to get to Mars. They also need enough for the trip back to Earth. But fuel itself is one of the heaviest supplies, and the more mass you're trying to launch into space, the more fuel you need. So more mass means more fuel, which means even more mass. Zubrin and Baker keep going in circles. Baker downs the last of his coffee as Zubrin scribbles on the chalkboard. He's got it this time. Look, I think we're making this more complicated than we need it to be. I mean, let's go back to basics. We know the atmosphere of Mars is 96% carbon dioxide, right? Baker nods, rubbing his temples in exhaustion. Zubrin continues writing. And the average temperature on Mars is negative 82 degrees Fahrenheit. Correct. Now, at that temperature, carbon dioxide transforms from a gas to a liquid at a pressure of a mere 100 pounds per square inch. We can generate that pressure with a pump. So that means they don't need to bring fuel for the return trip. They can manufacture it on Mars. Baker raises an eyebrow, but Zubrin plows ahead in excitement. So now we just have to figure out how to get them there with as little fuel as possible. There's an obvious choice, nuclear propulsion. We put a small nuclear reactor in the rocket, and then as the propellant heats up, it expands and is forced out of the rocket, creating thrust. Yeah, I know how nuclear propulsion works. Then tell me this plan isn't perfect. Baker crosses his arms and shakes his head. It's not perfect, Bob. Zubrin throws down the chalk and drops his jaw in disbelief. Baker smiles. This is their dynamic. Zubrin comes up with plans, and Baker tells him why they won't work. In many ways, they're perfect foils for each other. Baker is tall while Zubrin is short. 
Zubrin is an optimist, while Baker is a pessimist. Their differences are what make their collaboration work. Zubrin points at his notes on the chalkboard. Tell me one thing up there that doesn't work. Nuclear propulsion. What? That's the crux of the whole concept. It's how we can use the CO2 as a propellant. Nuclear energy is a non-starter, Bob. You propose that, and everyone's head fills up with images of Three Mile Island and Chernobyl. Plus, we've never actually launched a rocket using nuclear propulsion. So we spend a little money to develop it. It would pay for itself in two or three missions. That's not what I'm concerned about. I'm worried about convincing the public to accept a nuclear-propelled spacecraft. Plus, the time it would take to develop it would delay the first launch. You're the one who keeps insisting we have to do this on a rapid schedule. Zubrin nods. This is one of Zubrin's sticking points. NASA's budget is subject to congressional funding, so every year the mission to Mars is delayed is another opportunity for Congress to cut its budget. Zubrin slumps into a chair. Baker stands up and walks to the chalkboard. The overall concept is still sound. We just need to find a way to make the propellant on Mars for the trip home. Zubrin perks up. So you agree, that's the key. Baker nods. Absolutely. A few weeks later, Zubrin and Baker are back at the same conference room. Styrofoam coffee cups and empty pizza boxes litter the table. Zubrin is back at the chalkboard. We split the carbon from the oxygen in the atmospheric CO2. And in that form, those elements can be burned as propellant. Boom. What do you think? Baker shakes his head. No. No? That's it? No? Bob, it's not going to work, and you know it. Baker rises from his chair and patiently begins pulling Zubrin's theory apart. First off, the propellant Zubrin is suggesting isn't powerful enough to propel a standard rocket. Then there's the fact that the process of splitting the carbon from the oxygen requires hundreds of delicate ceramic tubes. I don't think it's fair to ask astronauts to rely on tubes that could easily shatter and then ask them to take those tubes into space. This fuel is how they get home. They need to feel confident that they're on a round-trip flight. Finally, Baker repeats his now-familiar refrain. Nobody's ever done it this way. It's NASA, Bob. You know how they feel about flight heritage. They want technology that's been used on actual missions. We're going to Mars. We're going to have to do some things we've never done before. Baker rolls his eyes. The goal is to get NASA on board, Bob. We need to play by some of their rules. You're right. You're right. He takes a long swig of room-temperature coffee. Back to the drawing board. Weeks pass, but Zubrin refuses to give up. One day, scouring old journals and research papers, he finds a 1970s paper by scientists at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. The study suggests a way to make oxygen-methane propellant on Mars. It checks most of Zubrin's boxes. It's strong enough to support a rocket, and it's been tested, so it has the coveted flight heritage. There's only one catch. It requires hydrogen, which is in short supply on the Red Planet. The JPL scientists had suggested mining the Martian permafrost, which contains frozen water. But there was no way to know in advance if mining the permafrost would work. This wouldn't be a guaranteed round trip. Still, the method sticks with Zubrin. It's so close to being perfect. If only they could bring hydrogen with them. There's plenty on Earth. Then, 
it hits him. It's a white and chilly morning, March 1990, Denver, Colorado. David Baker pulls into his parking spot. It's been a string of late nights trying to crack tomorrow's problem, and today promises to be another long day. But before Baker's even out of his car, Zubrin comes running up to him. His eyes are glassy and his hair is a mess. Baker can tell Zubrin didn't sleep last night. Dave, Dave, we bring the hydrogen with us. Good morning to you, too. Uh, We do what? We don't have to find everything on Mars. We can bring the hydrogen with us. The hydrogen we need is only 5% of the weight of the total propellant. I checked with our cryogenic experts. They say as long as we account for a 15% loss in transit, enough hydrogen will survive the trip to Mars. This is it. This is the perfect plan. Baker opens his mouth to point out why that won't work. It's a habit with Zubrin at this point. But then... He closes his mouth. Zubrin is right. Zubrin watches him expectantly, his eyebrows climbing farther and farther up his forehead as he awaits Baker's verdict. It's the perfect plan, Bob. Zubrin (laughs) lets out a relieved laugh. Baker pats him on the shoulder. Let's go over the entire mission again. Tweak anything that's wrong and pitch it to the team. Yes, but let's do it inside. It's freezing out here. A few weeks later, Zubrin and Baker are presenting their plan to a team of their co-workers at Martin Marietta. Their boss, at the head of the table, wears his usual scowl. This is it. If they can convince him that their plan works, he'll get them in to pitch NASA. (coughs) Zubrin clears his throat, wipes sweat from his brow, and begins. He's rehearsed it dozens of times, and he talks quickly as he lays out the details of the plan that he and Baker have spent months perfecting. They call it Mars Direct, and it's ambitious. The idea is to go straight to Mars. No messing around with a space station or a lunar base. Phase one is unmanned. A rocket will travel to Mars with hydrogen, an automated chemical lab that can use the hydrogen to create propellant for the return trip, and an ERV, Earth Return Vehicle. A few months after phase one, once the lab is producing fuel, a crew of four astronauts will travel to Mars in a Mars Habitat Unit, or HAB. They'll land, live in the HAB for 18 months, and then use the ERV to head home. Zubrin's out of breath by the time he finishes his explanation. He takes a drink of water. Uh, Any questions at this point? A blonde-haired man with a thick beard and even thicker glasses raises his hand. We all know landing on Mars is the hardest part. How are you going to land these vehicles? We'll use an aerobraking maneuver, flying the vehicle through the atmosphere at the lowest point of the orbit. There'll be enough drag on the vehicle to slow it down and allow for a soft landing. The blonde-haired man nods, satisfied by the answer. Another man raises his hand. Question after question, Zubrin and Baker have answers for everything. Baker's insistence on crossing every T and dotting every I is paying off. At the end of the presentation, the team claps. Zubrin and Baker's boss approaches them. His scowl transformed into a weary grin. Get ready to go to Huntsville, gentlemen, because I think it's time to take this dog and pony show to NASA. Hey! 
Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast early and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Wondery Kids Plus on Apple Podcasts today. It's April 19th, 1990, Huntsville, Alabama. Tomorrow, Zubrin and Baker will pitch the Mars Direct plan to a group of administrators at the Marshall Space Flight Center. They've been practicing all afternoon, and now they're out for a quick dinner so they can turn in early before the biggest presentation of their careers. Zubrin waves his fork as he talks. A piece of steak hangs on for dear life. I can see it now. We finish our talk. It's gone perfectly. The lights come up. An old man stands up in the back, leaning on his cane, and says, My dad didn't fly Mars missions that way, and neither did his daddy. Who are you to come in here and tell us how to fly Mars missions? <laughs> yeah, it's going to be a tough crowd. These NASA guys, they like to be the ones inventing things. Lubrin puts his fork down and looks Baker in the eyes, uncharacteristically nervous. I just don't want to blow this. This is our shot to get to Mars. Baker nods. We'll practice one more time tonight, and we can wake up early and practice again in the morning. Yeah, all right. But Zubrin's fears turn out to be unwarranted. The next day, Zubrin and Baker present their plan. Their audience at Marshall does not boo. They clap loudly. The scientists at Marshall are conservative, but they're conservative in a way that Mars Direct appeals to. They like that it's simple, that it uses rockets that have been used before, that it can be done now, that it's something that can actually happen. With Marshall behind the plan, Zubrin spends the next year pitching Mars Direct to various administrators within NASA. He continues to find allies, but then, little by little, his luck starts to run out. NASA administrators begin expressing skepticism. They think the program is too lean, that Zubrin and Baker are too optimistic about the amount of necessary supplies, and thus the total mass. Plus, Zubrin and Baker's plan eliminates the need for the space station, which makes the engineers working on the space station feel sidelined. After a few months of this, Zubrin is still bullish about their chances. But Baker is starting to have second thoughts. It's February 1991, Denver, Colorado. David Baker stands outside Zubrin's office door, gearing himself up to knock. He knows he's made the right decision, but that doesn't make what he's about to do any easier. Come in. Zubrin stands behind his desk, sifting through papers. He smiles when he sees Baker. Oh, I'm just packing up. Headed to that uh, meeting in Houston tomorrow. You sure you don't want to come? Do you have a minute? I want to talk to you about something. Zubrin pauses. He can tell Baker wants to talk about something serious. Sure, 
Sure, uh, have a seat. So, you know, I really enjoyed designing Mars Direct with you and constructing the mission architecture. But recently, I just haven't felt like there's a place for me in the project. I- I'm sorry, Dave. I-, I know I can get carried away in these meetings and you know, take over. Baker shakes his head. It's not that. Your energy, your passion, that's what the project needs now. The mission needs an evangelist, someone willing to do what it takes to convince the stodgiest NASA administrator. And that's you. But it's a two-man show. You're the one who fills in the gaps when I get too excited. Baker grimaces. This is the part he's nervous about. I'm not ready to bet my whole career on this. Zubrin smiles slightly. That feels like a dig. Still, he knows he'd never have made it this far without his intellectual sparring partner. Zubrin stands up and sticks out his hand. Best of luck to you. I I mean that with all sincerity. You too. Finally, in June 1992, NASA brings Zubrin to the Johnson Space Center in Houston. No more pitching. Zubrin has the green light to fine-tune the plan with one of NASA's mission architects. He's one step closer to NASA adopting Mars Direct. It's October 1992, Houston, Texas. Dave Weaver, one of NASA's mission architects, stares at a diagram of the Mars Direct plan on a chalkboard his hand on his chin. Zubrin watches, waiting for him to speak. I think the biggest problem is that you're overly optimistic. (laughs) Zubrin chuckles. It's not the first time I've heard that, Mr. Weaver. Weaver ticks through a familiar list of concerns. They're going to need more supplies and more astronauts than Zubrin thinks, all of which adds up to more mass. Zubrin clenches his jaw, preparing his retort. He wishes Baker were there to chime in. And then, this is what I can't get over. You're completely dependent on the in-situ propellant. It's the linchpin of the entire mission. Right, but the manned mission won't launch until they get a signal that the necessary propellant has been manufactured on Mars. The crew won't get stranded. True, but let's say something goes wrong and the automated chemical lab doesn't make the propellant. You're right that we wouldn't launch the manned mission and no one would die. That's good, but the mission is still a failure. Taxpayer dollars have been wasted. We need some way to keep the mission going, even if the propellant generation fails. Zubrin bites his tongue, unsure of how to proceed. He's come so far, and he can't tell if Weaver is about to dash his hopes against the rocks. Weaver squints at the chalkboard. What if the vehicle on Mars didn't have to get the crew all the way back to Earth? What if it just had to get to a spacecraft orbiting Mars? That vehicle could have its own fuel that could take our astronauts all the way home. We'd split the mission into three launches. First, we'd send an unmanned Mars Ascent vehicle. And the MAV carries the propellant generator and as much equipment and supplies as it can hold. Then we send the Earth return vehicle, which would not land. It would stay in high orbit around Mars and would have enough supplies and fuel for the return trip home. And then finally, the manned mission in the HAP. Zubrin nods, cautiously. He's not entirely convinced, but it also seems like Weaver's looking for a way to make this work. I see the value, Mr. Weaver. The MAV only needs to generate enough propellant to get itself and the crew to the Earth return vehicle. In the worst case scenario, if it didn't make the propellant, you could send a second MAV only filled with fuel, and that could get the crew back to the Earth return vehicle. Precisely. There's a backup plan. But Zubrin can't help expressing his reservations. Every time you add a launch, 
you drastically increase the costs, which I don't love. Just makes it easier for the bean counters to say no. It's not as elegant as Mars Direct. It's a little more like Mars Indirect. Zubrin pauses. He's tired of being doubted at every turn, and every fiber of his being wants to prove Weaver wrong. But he also knows that if he takes the compromise, a dream he's had for decades might finally come true. A vision of millions of kids across the country glued to their TVs, just like Zubrin was back in 1969. They're watching in amazement as American astronauts take their first tentative steps onto the surface of the red planet. Millions of kids inspired in a single moment to dream of even bolder missions. Zubrin smiles at Weaver. I don't love it, but I can live with it. Weaver claps his hands and grins. Then he begins packing up his things. Fantastic. I think we've proven the point. Zubrin looks at Weaver in confusion. Proven what point? that it's possible to come up with a mission to Mars that's lean and efficient. We'll add it to the list of mission strategies. Zubrin's face falls. Watching Weaver quietly tuck papers into his briefcase, he realizes that all this time, NASA has never shared his sense of urgency. They're still working on a lengthy timetable, and all this has just been a bureaucratic exercise, a thought experiment to prove that there's another approach to the problem. As Weaver saunters out of the room, Zubrin knows that NASA is no closer to sending a manned mission to Mars than they were the day they presented their $450 billion albatross to Congress. Zubrin continues to consult with NASA for over a year, fine-tuning what he's now calling the Mars Indirect Plan, hoping against hope that he can change their minds. His plan even makes the cover of Newsweek in 1994, but that's as close to Mars as Robert Zubrin ever gets. Mars Indirect never moves out of the planning phase. And yet, Zubrin did make one critical discovery that inched us ever so slightly closer to the surface of Mars. His realization that it was going to take a private business to lead the charge, and not NASA, inspired at least one ambitious young tech millionaire to enter the space race. But even for a millionaire, space is hard. In our next episode, Silicon Valley entrepreneur Elon Musk takes up the mantle of private space exploration, determined to disrupt space travel the same way he disrupted online banking. But Mars remains elusive, as even launching a simple rocket proves to be no easy task. If you like our show, please give us a five-star rating and a review. And be sure to tell your friends. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Wondery app, or wherever you're listening right now. And to listen to episodes one week early, join Wondery Plus. In the episode notes, you'll find some links and offers from our sponsors. Please support them. Another way you can support the show is by filling out a small survey at wondery.com survey and tell us which business stories you'd like to hear. And a quick note about the recreations you've been hearing. In most cases, we can't know exactly what was said. Those scenes are dramatizations, but they're based on historical research. If you want to learn more about Mars Direct, we recommend The Case for Mars by Robert Zubrin with Richard Wagner. American Innovations is hosted by me, Stephen Johnson. For more information on my books about science and innovation and history, including my latest one, Enemy of All Mankind, you can visit my website, stephenberlinjohnson.com, or follow me on Twitter at Stephen B. Johnson. 
Sound design on this episode is by Jason Freeman. This episode was written by Austin Rackless, with editing by Sam Dingman. Produced by Natalie Shisha. Executive produced by Jenny Lauer Beckman, Marshall Louie, and Hernan Lopez for Wondery. Hey, it's Guy Raz here, the host of How I Built This, a podcast that gives you a front row seat to how some of the biggest products were built and the innovators, entrepreneurs, and idealists behind them. Every week, I speak to someone new, stories like Justin Wolverton's, a lawyer who just wanted a healthy alternative to ice cream, so he created Halo Top in his Cuisinart. Or Todd Graves, who grew his fried chicken restaurant Raising Cane's into one of the most successful fast food chains in the U.S. All of these great conversations can help you learn how to think big, take risks, and navigate crises in life and work from people who've done all of that and more. Follow How I Built This on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to How I Built This early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus.